Welcome to New Money. I'm Brian Hurst this evening. We're once again focusing on estate planning. Estate planning involves the efficient distribution of your assets when you die and helps to avoid potential liabilities and problems. Estate planning is often postponed until later in life. But the centerpiece of any estate plan is the will. Some of the critical areas that are often overlooked is the impact on beneficiaries who are the minors, estate duty, CGT and marriage regime. And joining this evening once again are Gordon Stewart, Managing Director of Cura, and Harry Joffe, Head of Legal Services Discovery. Guys, Evening, Gordon, Brian. Thank yeah. you for coming yeah. back. Oh, thank you very much. And I, Harry, I, I, I and see you kept the eye candy. Yeah, and <laughs> Brian, he's pretty happy. Years, His team has scored a goal for the first <laughs> time of the season. Harry, he's actually we've smiling. Eight. <laughs> eight. More than he scored last year. Um, Gordon, let's just start off because yeah. the centerpiece, and I, I talk about the bingo card. If you remember, mm. you've got that first piece in the bingo card that everyone gets free before any numbers are called. Yeah. And that's the, in terms of your state planning, the importance of will. And I'm always asked the question is when should actually one draw up a will? At what stage in your life? Oh, Brian, I think you've nailed it. When it is, in essence, the cornerstone of every estate plan. Uh, because whether you have a simple estate plan or whether you have a complicated estate plan, the will is generally the, the document that's going to tie it all up. There's a number of different times when you would look at, at amending or changing your will. A couple of hand would be if you've, got, if you've just got married, if you've had children, if you've started to invest offshore. Um, uh, there's, there's, I would generally got say divorced. if you've got divorced. Uh, changed jobs, changed houses. Every two years, I think at the very latest, you should take it out, dust it off, and, mm. and have a look at it. Okay, but now you're talking about people already on their way in their life planning. What about, I mean, at what stage, Harry? I mean, would you Brian, say a 20 year old should have a will? Well, if they've got assets yeah, or, or assets. children, well, I've got a car. No. Okay. No. okay. I mean, clients <laughs> always say to you, I've got no assets, I don't need a will. And then you look at it, and they've got minor children. And you've got minor children, you must have a will because if the parents are killed, who becomes the guardian of the minor children? And they've got no assets, they've got a house. Who does the house go to if they die if it's not totally bonded? Even if it is bonded, the house still has to be bequeathed to someone. So people often say they've got no assets and you look a bit deeper, they actually have got assets. I mean, to come back to your example, if, you do, if you're 20 years old and you've got a motor vehicle and you pass away and you die without a will and you die intestate, it's going to pass back up to your parents anyway. Uh, but Harry's right, you know, often people tend to overlook the fact that they have acquired assets slowly but surely, or alternatively that they've now acquired Thank minor you. children. Brian, you don't do a will for a man united shirt, that's got no value. <laughs> they <laughs> have a lot of value. They can go <laughs> for free. Harry, you keep coming back to this, but 99 shirt, 1999 with all the signatures, just believe me, it's got some value. So, so let's just talk about some changes, because there have been some changes. One of the changes that's proposed, which concerns expats, is the, is the fact that if you are now working offshore, at the moment you're taxed in that regime if there's any tax to pay. Correct. Now they want to tax you at a South African rate. Gee, Brian, I mean, this is a topic that is going around the expat community mm. like wildfire. Everyone is talking about it. And when you look at the, the initial kind of proposal that came out, it was mentioned that, well, those that are in tax-free jurisdictions should then be taxed here in South Africa. When you have a look at the, the, trust, uh, sorry, the Taxation Laws Amendment Bill, they talk about all South African residents. Mm. So they've now gone and changed it from those that you know, they used Dubai as the original example where no tax is paid. Now it's across the board to everyone. So in essence, you, you would be taxed in South Africa on your foreign earnings. It would be added into your gross income. You can deduct whatever tax you've paid. 
and then you've got to pay the top up here in SA. Brad, we were actually joking last time because someone like Gordon is working in Mauritius, he's paying, say, a 15% tax rate. Under the previous uh, proposal, he wouldn't be taxed in mm. because he was paying some tax. They were saying you'd pay the differential. Now they've changed that totally and you're paying tax up to 45%, anything less. So, so Harry, this presents a problem because we talk about estate planning tonight. And you know, you plan your estate and all of a sudden it seems to be retrospective. A lot of legislation that comes in where you've, and, and with estate planning as well. I mean, well this is a tax problem because uh, as Gordon's saying, if you're an employee overseas and you've got an employer here, they're going to now tax you first of all over there and they're going to now have to tax you here as well. It only changes one March 2019, but still, it's quite a severe change. And then you're going to have to pay your tax overseas, claim back the tax you paid here, which as we know can take over a year to get back. And these employees are going to be out of pocket. Plus, it's so complicated. If you're paying tax in the UK and there's all these myriad of taxes, and then you're going to try to get credits back here for all of that, it's going to be a very tax return, very comprehensive. And as I say, all employees are going to be out of pocket. And I think there's something else to take into account. Is you've got, it's not taking into account things like cost of living. So Mauritius, while we might pay a, a lower tax rate, a cost of living is significantly higher. Mm. So it really is going to be a, an interesting topic. And I think you're going to see a large amount of expats cease to become SA yeah. residents. But here's another one where a lot of people are mentioning is they've been out of the country for a number of years. And in their minds, they are no longer South African tax residents. Because they've complied with 183 days. That's irrelevant, yeah. Brian. I mean, they've been out the country for 10 years. Yeah, so they've uh, broken the 330 days and the 915 days and yeah, all of that. Yeah, correct. So in their minds, they are no longer South African tax residents. But the true litmus test, when you cease to become a South African tax resident, it's a deemed capital gains tax event. So the question then is, are you truly non-resident, have you ceased to be an SA tax resident if you did never have that full and final deemed capital gains tax event? And then if you, if you try and claim that and you said you left 10 years ago, are SARS going to say, fine, that's when you should have paid your capital gains tax and we'll run penalties and interest to date? And the other problem, Brian, is a lot of these people actually have still got homes here. And remember, there's a, there's a time test and there's a common law test. And the common law test says if you ever intend to return back to South Africa, you can still be tax resident mm -hmm. here. So these people are keeping their homes here, their wives here, their club memberships here. They could still be tax resident even if they've been out for 10 years. Well, we're going to take a short break. You're watching New Money. We're talking estate planning this evening. I'll give the number out when we come back. Stay tuned. We'll be back shortly. Welcome back to Money this evening. We're discussing estate planning. My guests are Gordon Stewart and Harry Joffe. You can call us. Please note our new number, 011-280-5350. Our lines are working. I apologize to those that tried to get through last week and couldn't get through. Uh, you can also email me uh, questions, which we'll deal in the next show. Brian H at bhca.co.za. We had a call while we were on air. Chantal, while we were taking our break, she says, if I move money offshore with exchange permission, I bring the money back, and I now want to take it out again. Do I need to get exchange approval again? Or can I set that off? Let's say you took 800,000 Rand offshore, 
Well, you didn't need to get it. So let's go bigger. You took mm. two million rand. You got a foreign exchange allowance. You moved the money. You put an investment. You sell the investment. Bring the money back. Now you want to take the two million rand out again. If I remember correctly, you don't. You have shouldn't. To apply. As long as you placed you it on record when yeah, you brought it back. Exactly. So as long as the bank, your local bank's forex department, which acts on behalf of the Reserve Bank, as long as they know about it, mm. then it'll be out of pro, mm. um, pretty freely. Okay. This is one that I'd like to deal with a bit. Of. Hilton in Johannesburg says, "Does it make sense to move my business into a trust?" Um, in other words, he's saying, I've got a business, and should I now be thinking about a trust? Gordon, trust is, is, is trust, uh, the use of a trust changed materially in the last year or two? I think he, he's obviously alluding to a business trust. Uh, and I've seen pros and cons for each yeah. with regards to business trust. You know, some articles are quite pro, some articles are, are against it. So personally speaking, I'm not a big fan on it because... My, my take on a trust was always that it's there to look after and protect the assets for the beneficiaries. It shouldn't be highly speculative. And obviously by trading, uh, a business is speculative in nature. I have also seen some devious structures put in place where profits are, have been distributed down to the beneficiaries mm -hmm. and taxed in their hands in order to utilize lower tax rates. Uh, Brian... If, if I was asked, I would generally say no. Say no but, but you've got to look at all the circumstances. Correct. Even if it's not a business trust, if you move your company into a trust, even though you would remain the MD of that company, you know, you've now got a trust as your shareholder. And that means your trustees actually control the shares of your business. And okay, you're still the MD and you're still running your business, but as those shareholders, they've got powers over you. And you can't, you can't control that trust. Exactly. The and control they could, of the trust makes it a shame. you might trust. want to sell your business and you might get an offer and they might say, no, they don't want to sell it. You might have a fallout with your trustees and then they go to the Companies Act and they bring in you know, Section 162, delinquent uh, directors, and they try to get you fired. So, you know, you just got to be careful. Be and careful. I take that, Gordon's that's point. Your, your one is actually quite correct, is where you're talking about a trust owning shares yes, in yes, a company. Yes, as opposed to the business trust. Yeah, as opposed to what I was referring to. But I'm still to. nervous. Even if it's uh, not a business trust and it's a proper trust structure, the people running their own business, they're in control. Now they move it into a trust. They're not in control anymore. And I know South Africans think, well, we're still being in control. But as you said, Brian, you don't can't control your trust. You can't. Let's just take Mark question. Mark, good evening. Go and do the question. Mark, are you with us? Have we lost Mark? Maybe we'll get no. back to you. Yes, Mark? Hi, Brian. I have an offshore trust account, which is fully invested. Um, I've got other funds in my wife and my name. Can I transfer these funds directly to the trust, or do I have to open an account in our personal name? Mark, is that offshore monies? So your yes. trust is offshore, and you've got, uh, you've got money in your own name offshore? Correct. No, you can transfer it, Mark. You can transfer it uh, from your name into the, uh, the trust bank account. There would be tax issues, of course, because yeah, now it's capital capital loan tax. accounts and all of that. So okay, so, the transfer price okay, okay so yeah. you've got to transfer it in as a, as a loan. Yeah, so it and would go in at up market value. You, and then you get, no, it sounds like cash. Oh, if it goes in in cash, then, then it's a loan, and you're going to pick up the transfer pricing rules. So you're going to pick up, is that 7C? No, no it's 31. And, and what, is that, what is that? That's LIBOR plus 1 is the interest rate that so you need to charge. So it's similar to 7C, but not exactly the same. As Gordon says, the rates are different, mm. and they, they punish you for having a loan against a foreign asset. Or foreign and LIBOR is about what, what, 1, 1.5%? One some, some uh, it depends, yeah, it depends on your currency. Uh, Swiss franc, for example, is minus 0.72, which gives you an effective rate of 0.3%. Okay. 
Free, uh, we've got to call it at phones quite regularly, Harry. Frida, have to speak to you sometime on the phone. Frida from East London says, My husband is a 50% shelled in a company with his brother. I've been told that they have policies in place to cover continu continuity on either of their deaths. My husband says he has not signed any agreement with his brother. Should I be worried? Brian, we get this so often. You know, they've got policies in place. Great. The, the advisor's done his job there. But there's no agreement. So, you know, if one of them dies, the money's going to pay out... Uh, we're not sure from Frida if it's a company-owned policy or an individual-owned policy. So is it a buy and sell or is it a, a key man-type structure? I, I think let's, let's stick to, because let's just stick to buy and sell. Mm. Let's assume All each right, of them so let's assume they each own in each other's lives. So that means brother one passes away, the money pays to brother two. Now, if there's no contract in place, is he going to be obliged to buy those shares, number one, or will he just hold on to the money? Even if he buys those shares, which is a, not a given, what's the value he's going to pay for those shares? And we have this so often and there's always a fight because obviously the brother who's got the money wants to pay less for the shares. And obviously the surviving widow wants to get fully paid out for the shares. And then how do you value the shares? What value do you take? And now one of the brothers is dead, so the business is dropped in value. I've had this about five times last year. Every one of them ends up in court. And, and Harry, just go further because in many agreements and going back some time, it would say, you know, there is an agreement in place. So we say to Frida, there should be an agreement right. in place. Mm. That's the advisor not doing his but job. Let me just by take this a stage further. Uh, I've got a policy. You and I are partners. I've got a policy on your life. You've got a policy on my life. The, bu the business we've taken out policies, and the value of those policies are a lot higher than the value of the business. Yes. Um, and the agreement says that either the value of the policy is what I'm going to buy the shares for, or the higher of the actual value. Right. So, so, the, so the value price of the business, the, the policy business or the shares, yeah, the value, are higher. Yeah, the business value is five million, and the policies are five million each. So the actual oh, we've overinsured. Right. Is that a problem from it a safety point of view? It is a problem, and it's a problem for two reasons. Number one, if so I see a policy worth five million, and the shares, from what you've told me, are actually two and a half million, you've now got a policy that's a lot more than the shares, and so I'm going to say that policy is not a legitimate buy and sell policy. And then in terms of 33A1A of the Estate Duty Act, they won't give you exemption for estate duty. Mm. That's number one. Number two, when brother one dies and the money pays to brother two and he spends five million rand for a share worth two and a half million, which was not accidental, that was intended from the beginning, so also going to say that's a donation. And you're going to end up paying donations tax on that two and a half million surplus payment at 20%. So those who've got key man, I mean, buy and sell arrangements, need to re keep re-looking at values exactly. and understanding the state duty implications. Can, sorry, can yeah. I just come well, in there, Brian? I mean, sorry, Harry. If you, if the value of the shares was two and a half million, and the, and the yes. purchase price is five million, mm. is that not you? What is the proceeds for capital gains tax purposes? Correct. So then, SAS, you can get caught on both sides. Yeah. Because remember, you got the owners of proof. So SARS can say we want capital gains on the five million yeah, that you sold the shares for. You end up paying CGT on that as well. So you've got to have a look at it. You could have so, a quarter so, of three taxes. So you've yeah. actually got to, you know, we talk about looking at your will and looking at your trust. You've actually got to look at all these aspects as or part your company of your contracts. Of, of, of your, yes, yeah, your debt contracts, your buy and sell contracts. Okay, Larry and Sam says I need to bring money into South Africa from a trust that I took amnesty on in 2003. I would like to do it by way of a loan. I've received the exchange control application for completion. I've noticed that I have to make a declaration which states that the loan funds to be introduced do not represent or are not sourced from funds for which amnesty has been granted in terms of the Exchange Control Act and Amendment of Tax Laws 2003. Surely this can't be correct. 
if that's the law, that's the law, Brian. Um, there been a change. Um, obviously, because I, I did see this some time ago, Gordon, where there was actual uh, in the form actually says previously it didn't say that it says you can't you can't pass money to another South African from an amnest you can't as an amnestized situation just pa- just give assets to someone else. But in this situation, can you um, can you not bring Harry? Can you not? Yeah, bring I, mean, I know they're very strict on what you do with the money from these amnesty trusts, mm. and I don't know when they've changed it, but it's definitely yeah, a, a problem. What Why? Okay, I think you know. First and foremost, the golden rule is is that a South African resident may not borrow money from a non-resident without authorised dealer approval. Um, it looks like they've gone a little bit further with this, and now they've they've linked it to those amnesty amnesty trusts. Why does he not just bring it in as a distribution? He's probably a beneficiary of the trust. Because if he brings it in as a distribution, now it's formed parts of his South African estate. Maybe that's why they're doing it. Is, uh, is of course, if he brings it in as a loan, so he's got a liability offshore on the two set-offs. Yeah. So that's why yes. he's trying to so do if that. He brings yeah. it in as, if, he brings, if he's taken a loan, let's assume he's created, he's got this trust offshore, he's got a bank account offshore, so he loans from the trust mm-hmm. internationally, yeah. brings the money back. He's got a foreign liability now. Yeah, but he's got that loan. So in, in, in the event of that, he does, he's got that loan, he's got permission, and he's got that loan set off against the trust. Yeah, but that, that, it's that loan to a non-resident, exactly. which is why the Reserve Bank are quite clear that you can't borrow money from a non-resident without their express Because that exposes your South African estate to offshore exactly. liability, which they're very nervous about. It's the same as, sorry, Brian, it's a good, quest, a good point, is it's the same difference between security and surety. So the one is that if, you ta- if you've got a South African resident who takes money offshore and let's say they put it into an investment policy over there, they can use that as security because the money's already out the country. But you can't use that as surety because then well, you can't have a non-resident signing surety on behalf of a South African resident because if that surety is called up, you could get a flow of funds going out of the mm. country without the authorized uh, dealer's exactly. approval. If you're ever exposing your local estate to a liability offshore, you've got to get approval for that. But one more on that because it's often looked. You've got South African residents who borrow money from their local trusts to make use of and to invest it offshore, not realizing that when they pass away, that loan is a liability in their estate, which the trust is then technically obliged to call up. And if they don't have sufficient liquidity in South Africa to settle that liability, mm. the offshore assets going to have to come back anyway. Mm. Well, we're going to take a break. You're watching New Money. Stay tuned. We'll be back shortly. Welcome back to New Money this evening. We're discussing state planning. My guests are Harry Joffe and Gordon Stewart. I've got an email from Shauna. Before I take Shauna's email, I've had quite a lot of people talk to me since our last program, Gordon, about a blind trust. Mm. And they're concerned that maybe, the, you know, with changes that have come about, all these proposed changes to state to you, the Davis Tax Committee re- recommendations, just run through a bl- blind trust and how it works. A blind trust? you guys do blind trusts? Not really. Not really. A blind trust is really mm. just a trust that doesn't have any nominated beneficiaries, which are then appointed at a later stage through a letter of wishes. Or you've got a charity of the beneficiary, yeah, a nominal beneficiary, but they're not popular anymore, I can yeah, tell you. It's, it's not... You know, if you go back through history, one of the reasons why you had a a blind trust is because in terms of the 25B2A of the Income Tax Act, it says that if you, you, 
if a trust makes a distribution of income that was produced in the year that the person was a beneficiary, then it will retain its identity. So the logic was, is okay, fine, we don't have any beneficiaries, which means then that that particular section doesn't come into play. And you'd have to declare on your tax return that you're yeah. a beneficiary because you weren't a beneficiary. Before. But in today's day and age with CRS and FATCA and that, most offshore management okay. companies won't touch it. So, so maybe, may, maybe I've misinterpreted the blind trust. Maybe I'm talking about a bottom drawer trust. That's what people are referring to. A bottom drawer trust is really a trust that you set up now to ultimately inherit your offshore assets so that you don't inadvertently bequeath your local assets or, or your offshore assets back to a local trust. And the reason why I created the product is that to set up an offshore trust now to receive the foreign assets means you've got all of these administration costs, mm. which makes it prohibitive. This trust is set up low cost, doesn't cost you anything until one day it receives the Let me give you a good example for Gordon mm -hmm. of a blind trust. So Discovery got an offshore life policy. By the way, we're the only ones in the, in the country who got that. So you take out your offshore life policy in dollars, you've got minor children. Who do you make the beneficiary of your offshore life policy? This bottom draw you trust. don't want to create a trust yeah. now because it's going to cost you a lot of money, so you create a bottom draw trust, mm -hmm. which is much cheaper, but it's still there to do the job if you die, so your minor children are looked so after. So Harry, let's talk about that because you guys have done a lot of business over the years. This has been running for a few years. Yes. Have, at the same advice as taking out that, that policy, and that's actually protection uh, uh, of your family. Yes. So does Discovery recommend to their brokers and financial planners that they have a bottom draw trust? Look, what we recommend, if the client is a high net worth client. We recommend he takes out a proper trust into Vivos now while he's alive. Because obviously there's nice benefits in doing that. But if the client has got minors and they don't want to spend to set up an inter Vivos trust now, we would uh, look at doing that. The problem is the clients, if they've got minor children, are saying to us, you know, we don't want to spend any money yet because we're still low level. And then they, they're trying to create other ways to get around it. And that doesn't work. Gordon's solution is a much Gordon, better solution. Gordon's solution is actually ideal. It's bulletproof because yeah. it's low cost and it gives you exactly what you're looking for. Okay, well please, Brian, what clients shouldn't do, just a warning, they shouldn't make their local estate the beneficiary of that policy. Because mm. that makes it estate dutable straight away, mm. makes it back into a deemed asset and estate dutable. It undoes all of the planning, all of that that planning we've done. The Correct. what you put in. Because a normal discovery offshore life policy is not estate dutable, and that's its unique benefit. Okay, so let me, let me make my claim. Having introduced the two of you, if Discovery and Gordon do business, then I'm entitled to commission. Sean in Durban says, is a living will binding on doctors and how do doctors even know that I have a living will? That's a good question. Yeah, I, um, I remember answering this a long, long time in your show, uh, ago in your show. The answer is technically that if they do not adhere to the letter of wishes, then they can be held guilty of assault. That's kind of the, the gist Who of Who can it. be held guilty? The doctors. doctors. Yeah. Right, I think the extra point to add is it's not a will. Because a will only gets opened after you die. It's actually a living contract it's more than contract. anything. It's, it's not a binding. Can you, <laughs> it's, yours, it's your choice, I suppose, to say... Of, I mean, do, doctor, yeah, do our, doctors our, have to adhere to this living will? Yeah, do family members have to yeah, adhere because to it? Yeah, uh, because it comes back to me now. As, as a patient, you're supposed to give the doctor the, the authority uh, to operate on you or to treat you. That document is withholding that authority. So therefore, if the doctor treats you, then you can sue them for assault. 
So what you need, really need to know, your family needs to know Correct. you've got a living will. Yeah, exactly. And maybe they have to have a copy of that, of that living will. Yeah. But then, is it binding? That's the question that's been asked. Sean is asking. It is binding, because yeah. it's your choice. Yeah. If you don't want to be treated at a certain stage, it's your choice. Yeah. And, uh, and I've seen different formats of a living will. I mean, one of them says, you know, I don't want to starve to death. I mean, withhold any, any, any means of keeping me alive on support machines or anything like that. But certainly don't withhold food. Yeah, I mean, that's your choice again yeah. as well. When yeah. you're gonna, at what stage you're going to stop the treatment? Okay, Brad in Pretoria says, my partner and I are gay, we are not married. Do we have any protection under law against a claim of the other estate in the event of death? Oh, that's a great question. Mm. I mean, Brian, because what is so great about this question is the law is different depending on what law you're looking at. Mm. So, estate duty act says one thing, you know, maintenance of surviving spouses act says another, interstate succession is another. So, for estate duty, for example, they are recognized as spouses as long as it's a permanent relationship. Because the definition of spouse there is very, very clear. Mm. For maintenance and for interstate succession, it's not clear. We've had constitutional court cases that have had to try and close the gap. But the actual acts themselves do not define a spouse to, to let them qualify. And that's why we've had to have those cases go to the constitutional court. So they should make it very clear in their contracts, you know, in their will or their contracts, how it's going to work on their death. Or alternatively, a civil union. Correct. A civil union would make them spouses for mm. all the acts, mm. and then there'd be no grey areas. Well, unfortunately, we, we can't uh, deal with any more questions. I've got about five or six more. Gordon, I think you're back here in September with me. Uh, yeah, October, first week of October, okay. yeah. Well, uh, one, me, one can never <laughs> underestimate the importance uh, of estate planning. This is the reason why I deal with this topic on a regular basis. Sometimes one's estate planning goals in to contradict each other by the new deceased trying to take and retain control of assets that are used after their death. With an effective state plan, you can provide security for all of those that I wish to benefit. Carrie, Gordon, thank you very much for joining this evening. Thank you, Brian. It's important Brian. to note that our program is to provide information and should not be construed as advice. Next week's program, we'll once again be fo focusing on the short-term insurance industry. And if you need to get hold of me, my details appear on the screen. Guys, thank you for watching and good night.